0: Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people. I'm your host, Emma Fabregat. You're listening to season four of our in-depth series on security, conflict, and climate change. If we can afford to eat outside
1: that corrupt food system, we do it. But it needs to be a bottom-up and a top-down solution.
0: Today, I'm joined by Alana Mann to discuss food security, veganism, and climate change. Alana, first of all, thank you so much for joining me today um, to talk about veganism in the context of climate change. Sure. Thanks, Emma. It's a real pleasure to be joining you. I just wanted to know if you could give our listeners a bit of context about yourself, what you do, what you studied. Anything that's just relevant to this, but also anything else you'd like to speak about? Well, I
1: work at the University of Sydney and I'm a researcher in the Sydney Environment Institute. Ever since I started my doctoral research on food sovereignty movements, I've become very interested in a lot of the messages that we get about food. So I think that most people would agree that the food chain is very long and complex and we need to focus on interventions at all different points along it. So I'm interested initially in how farmers and fishers produce food, how small-scale farmers in particular, Indigenous people, landless workers, farm workers, how they actually secure their own food security along with feeding the rest of the world. I now look at the messages that we get about our diets because that's another
0: part of the problem. (laughs) So what actually entails a vegan diet, just for anybody that hasn't heard of a vegan diet, which I feel like most people would have, but if you could give a brief overview of that as well. Sure. Principally,
1: I think most people will recognise a vegan diet as one that excludes meat, egg and dairy products, basically.
0: So obviously we're talking about anything related to climate change in terms of what we're experiencing and ways that we can help. So today we're going to be talking about veganism. And my first question to you would be, how does a vegan diet help reduce your carbon footprint?
1: Okay, well, the first thing I'd like to say is that veganism is a a social movement, and I'm really interested in social movements. As I mentioned, I was interested in food sovereignty movements in my doctoral research and it really showed me that social movements are sites of contestation and friction and that we shouldn't generalise about groups of people who are eating in a particular way I think that our own sensitivities to the stereotyping of our food practices give us fair warning that people's diets are really none of their business. At the same time, the reasons that people are vegan are, yes, very closely related to climate change now. I think you could safely say that people's concerns around emissions production, animal welfare, all of the bads of industrial livestock especially, are reasons why people move away from animal proteins. So I think that the reasons people adopt a vegan diet are complex. We can't generalise about them. For some people, you know, the variety of meanings and interpretations might include things like African-American communities, for example, vegans of colour can choose to use their veganism to, as they say, decolonise the body from a colonial diet that's been killing their communities. At the same time, we also have to pay a lot of attention to production systems when we talk about vegan products and that's where a lot of my research has focused.
0: Of course. So then if somebody is maintaining a vegan diet and they're doing it for environmental purposes, what would their main points of action and reasoning be behind that? Well, there is
1: a a lot of evidence that drives people to adopt different sorts of diets that avoid livestock protein. And when we look at the amount of land, for example, that livestock protein requires, when we look at the amount of water and also, of course, the amount of grain that livestock eat, it appears quite simple. It appears like quite an easy decision to make. But a lot of those calculations dismiss some of the other aspects that we need to focus on. So my argument is that beyond tracking carbon emissions, for example, we need to focus on transitioning to food systems that restore ecosystems and also ensure a healthy, resilient food supply into the future. So we can't expect everybody to radically change their diets It is very true, however, that there are certain sectors of the livestock industry which have no place in not only a healthy diet, but in an ethical food system. And they are the concentrated feeding operations that you see depicted in a lot of the popular media these days. For example, Cowspiracy, which was a a very popular documentary.
0: So it has been said, though, that some vegan products still have a serious negative impact on the environment, despite being more environmentally friendly than meat and dairy. Would you say that is a true statement or how has that been modelled? It certainly is a true statement because along with those concentrated
1: animal feeding operations, I argue in a lot of my work that just as damaging to ecosystems human health and animal health are industrial monocultures and they include many of the crops that are part of
0: a vegan diet, including almonds and soy, for example. And then do you believe that a vegan dietary model is as truly sustainable in the long term as people would make it believe?
1: Well, no, not necessarily. And this is where it gets complicated because As with every food product, if you're concerned about the ethics of what you eat and you're concerned about sustainability, you really have to look, even beyond ingredients, you have to look at how they're produced and who produces them and for whose benefit. So you really need to think about, am I buying an ultra-processed meat replacement, for example, that has many ingredients that I don't know the name of, damaging inputs like salt and sugar, and does it also, is it based on a crop? that has environmental consequences. So we do need to think about those other types of production systems. Many of those monocultures require high amounts of chemical inputs, for example. That means a lot of pesticides. It might mean a lot of herbicides and fertilizer as well, which are fossil fuel based. So the food system as we know it, which is really based on these supply chains that basically send these commodities around the world, it masks a lot of the bads of the food production of grains. And this means that it's not as easy as just taking a meat replacement. Many of the products that have been developed fall somewhere between beef and chicken as well in terms of their sustainability if we're looking at water and GHG emissions, et cetera. So the simple bean patty is a great solution, but the ultra-processed Impossible Burger is not.
0: But in terms of, let's say, meat, you, we're still needing to produce mass amounts of grains to feed animal livestock. So could traditional farming practices simply become more climate-friendly instead of being replaced by vegan farming?
1: There's no doubt that we need to rein in the industrial livestock, and that complex that you're talking about, which is the grain oil seed livestock complex, which really props this industrial food system up. What you mentioned is really true. For example, I've done quite a bit of work in Brazil. Much of the soy that's grown in Brazil, which is now called the Republic of Soy, actually, the entire southern cone of South America, really, it actually goes to China for feed for pork for pigs. So that has enormous consequences, not just for human health because there's rising obesity as people particularly in the middle class in China, add more meat to their diets. But a lot of the ways that pork is produced in China leads to large amounts of agricultural runoff, which is affecting the East China Sea, for example, which is now having the same impacts as the Gulf of Mexico, which is subject to a lot of the runoff from the CAFOs in North America. You've got a situation also where that soy production is having a huge impact on Brazil it's now displacing some of the threats that cattle ranching posed to the Amazon. so here you've got a monoculture that is not only propping up pork as well but it's also propping up aquaculture which is another very problematic industry which is subject to the same sorts of concentration and complexity as the meat the livestock industry so when we talk about food systems And how we grow these products, yes, you can grow everything in a sustainable setup. Beef, for example, can be more sustainable if raised in marginal environments, pasture fed beef, than coffee grown in an intensive environment. Similarly, if you're going to grow almonds in a biodiverse, sustainable setup, they're a lot better for the environment. And hence, the products that you buy that come from those environments are much more sustainable than almonds grown in monocultures that don't have that biodiversity. By that, I mean a variety of different plants like florals that support pollinators because bees and other insects, as well as birds, are the big losers when it comes to these monocultures because it's devastating. It's one of the reasons why many species are becoming extinct. And this is something we've known for decades.
0: No, of course. And then so where do you see this trend going? Because obviously veganism as a kind of a movement has really picked up in the past few years. What trend are you seeing towards meat consumption? Do you think that it's or do you, have you seen that it's on a downcline? How is that trend going? It is
1: true that plant-based diets are definitely on the rise in developed economies. So the US and the UK now, in the UK, 5% of people identify as vegan. That seems like an incredible transition. But if you look at per capita global consumption of animal products, it's still moving up. It's doubled since 1980. Americans still consume twice the amount of protein they need. In Asia, meat consumption is actually rising about 4% per year and meat and dairy is starting to rise too. And that's among populations that were lactose intolerant. They've now adopted a lot of Western products. So livestock is still the fastest growing sector of agriculture, especially for the middle class in emerging economies. And I think we really need to think about that because when we're talking about climate change, it knows no boundaries. What we do in affluent middle class societies in the West doesn't have a huge impact. And that's why a lot of my work has been about focusing less on what we consume. Sure, if we can eat out of a bad food system, we pay attention to all these things. That's really important. It's really important for our health. And it does make a difference because it's sending a message and educating people, which is what I really I really appreciate about the veganism movement. It's making people think about food. Because I think for too long, we've been very complacent, especially in places like Australia, where it appears we have an abundance of food. So I think what we need to do is think of the globe. We can't miss what's happening in the rest of the world. There are a lot of people, of course, all over the Global South who are eating an organic, sustainable diet that some of it's vegan. It depends on where they live and what they have available to them. But the fact is, a lot of people are already eating a relatively healthy diet. Unfortunately, what has happened is investment in this industrial food system has happened at the expense of small-scale farming. So, those really. Positive, small scale, local, resilient, sustainable ways of producing and consuming food are being, if you like, destroyed by the global industrial food system.
0: That's a really interesting point you raise about that lifestyle of the way that we eat and not making an association with the effects it has on the environment. I mean, in terms of a personal account, I was. Vegan for five years when I was growing up in Mexico. And the biggest challenge that I faced was people constantly saying to me, you know, you're not eating enough protein, it's not healthy, it's really bad for your body. And my family and people within older generations really hold on to that kind of stereotype that you must eat meat or a form of meat every single day to get your protein intake to be healthy. And First of all, that's not true. You can actually get sources of protein from things like tofu and legumes, which are very highly packed in protein. But the way that we view food is so narrow, and it's like tunnel vision almost. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges when it comes to adopting any sort of diet closely to plant based diets. Only when you're able to have that conversation with people and make them question, why is it that you feel that to have an actual meal, you need a meat-based source of protein? How do you change that conversation? Obviously, we have great documentaries and pieces of information that are becoming more mainstream, I guess. Not to switch people to a vegan diet, as you said, I don't think it suits everyone. And depending on what country you live in, growing up in Mexico, fruit and vegetables are so cheap. So being able to maintain a plant-based diet was very easy there. But I do agree, when I moved to Australia, I found eating a plant-based diet was extremely difficult because it's so expensive. It's not a luxury that everybody can have. So I guess what I'm asking is, why do you think that... People are so caught up in this mentality that a meal equals having a meat-based protein. And how do we change that? Well, I think a lot of it's
1: cultural. Dietary habits are passed through generations. Not all cultures would consider that you have to have meat in every meal. I think it's quite an Anglo idea. And I think also your point about Mexico is an excellent one because Mexico where I've really enjoyed doing research and amazing food culture. I was working with grain farmers in Mexico and looking at how they were, I guess, translating their unique conception of what food sovereignty means as part of the La Via Campesina movement, so the small-scale farmers' movement, the peasant way. And when I was working with them, they'd clearly been pushed out of the local market in grain production by big firms moving across the border due to the North American Free Trade Agreement. And that particular product, maize, has been the victim of trade liberalisation, the opening up of Mexico's food economy to global forces, to the point where there's an entire shift in diets now. Mexicans have some of the poorest health outcomes in the world, lots of non-communicable diseases, lifestyle-related diseases to do with diabetes, obesity, they've got lots of sugary drinks, and they also have cheap processed corn, which, as you'd know, for many Mexicans, the tortilla is 75% of your diet. If it's made of unhealthy corn, it's not a healthy meal. So Mexicans traditionally had the holy trinity of maize, beans, and rice. And now, because of the adulteration of their food system by, if you like, free trade, they have supermarkets full of instant noodles, which now Mexicans eat more than they eat landrace corn. And they've lost hundreds of varieties of indigenous corn because they've been priced out of the market. And also they've got the issue of genetic modification, other varieties being planted. So there you have a real snapshot in Mexico of how diets have shifted. And in response, the powers that be have told them that to address their health crisis, they should be moving to a salmon and broccoli diet. So here again is this imposition of a Western diet that does not suit traditional Mexican cultures and previously economies, but to which they are almost locked into as a result of this globalised food system. And so I think that when it comes to dissolving these traditional food cultures, that's where the rubber hits the road. I think we need to think about, okay, everyone's diet is different all around the world. How can we actually recover? How can we actually return to that traditional food wisdom, as Fred Provenza calls it? Fred Provenza wrote a great book called Nutritionism. What he did was he followed range land animals around like goats and sheep and looked at what they ate and the diversity in their diets is what keeps them healthy. And human beings, we're not that different. We're animals. We should eat like animals. So how do we actually restore some of those really important traditional foods that used to be part of our diet? Because we're out of place, he says, when we eat a universal diet. So we shouldn't all be eating one particular diet. We should be eating diets that fit to our unique locales, you know, the places where we not necessarily grew up, but the places where generations before us grew up.
0: Definitely. And I think to add to that, it's also about eating what's in season. And I agree, especially in Mexico, you're completely right. I had been in places where Coca-Cola bottles were cheaper than buying water bottles, I'm not sure it still stands, but at one point when I was living there, I know that Mexico passed the US in terms of obesity, which was such a shock because they have such an abundance of fruit and vegetables at such low prices. That's what I could never get my head around. Like you said, trying to go into this Western diet, and I don't know if it's something about aspiring to follow the Western culture, you know, feeding into that. If you go into first world countries, I know in Australia, when I arrived in Australia, I was shocked by how often people get Uber Eats. I, I just didn't grow up uh, around that. I always grew up with a family that cooked dinner and we had our our set meals. And then to come to a country where by the click of a button, you'll have dinner ready for you in 20 minutes delivered to your door, the ease of access only makes it worse. Exactly. And I think
1: convenience has managed to trump a lot of these concerns where we're finding, and this is where climate change and COVID has helped make this really visible. We're finding that so many of our food practices have impacts not only that ripple out to other populations in other parts of the world, but they also ripple far into the future and all of this plastic we use the fact that we transport food all around the world and also a lot of the ultra processed foods that share a lot of the ingredients of the fossil fuel industry like they're no different from shampoo the extent of processing in some foods it just defies the imagination yet people are actually and this is where the media and marketing come in people are convinced many people that if they eat something and it's labeled as a vegan product or it's part of this suite of new wellness products, everything from the different plant-based milks that we have to all the faux meat, even the cultured meat, the fake meat being produced, all of these things, they really highlight the fact that natural is bad and processed and marketed is good. Whereas we know that these messages are actually leading us further into a problem that we can't extricate ourselves from by relying on technology. It's actually going back to diverse knowledges and avoiding this message that your contemporary world is toxic and that you have to constantly self-regulate and purify by buying certain sorts of products. And then there's the mythology that you're actually going to transform the food system. The people who work in the food system, they can't even afford the products they produce, the healthy products, let alone all the health fixes that are promoted in a multi-million dollar industry, the wellness industry. So, you know, a lot of the people who are the hungriest or have the poorest diets are those who work in the food industry. And I think we saw that really clearly through COVID because everybody started looking at the conditions in, for example, the meat packing plants over in the U.S. And they realise that regulation through market choice doesn't really solve any of the problems in the broader supply chain where you've got farmers, agricultural workers, food service staff, they can't afford the product. So it's a failure as a theory of change. We can't shop our way out of the lock-in that is industrial food. We actually have to get very political about it.
0: Yeah, I love that you mentioned the greenwashing of the vegan industry because it's very true. I know that When I would shop around to buy products for when I was vegan, it was very much like I would stick to fruit and vegetables, but then you're targeted by this market that caters towards you. And it's like vegan Tim Tams, vegan Oreos, all highly processed products. But just because it has the vegan label on it, you're like, oh, it's less bad, but it's just as bad for the environment. It's as bad for your health as well. It just lacks the dairy in it or the egg or whatever it is. So then I would like to ask you about when it comes to organic foods, because I've heard a lot of mixed reviews that, one, it's not completely sustainable in the sense that because of how densely populated and how quickly we need to produce food, an organic diet or only relying on organic products is also not sustainable. I'd love to hear what you think about that.
1: Yes, that's a big argument used by people who really sign up to the Inputs. We're locked into a system now where, for a lot of organisations and corporations, quite frankly, if they solve these problems, they lose their profit base. And that is, without sounding like a conspiracy theorist, that is absolutely the truth. There's an Australian soil scientist who's written about it. So she was trying to teach Australian farmers, the whole industry, really about the biological dynamics of soil carbon sequestration, okay, and how you could actually restore soil carbon restoration, how it could store up to a billion tonnes of atmospheric carbon per year and really offset emissions in a big way. She realised, she says, that science wasn't the answer. She said that it was the implications of an industry that depends on us not finding solutions to problems because those problems generate income for all of the expanding industries that manufacture synthetic fertilisers, herbicides, insecticides and fungicides. So, there are a lot of people with a vested interest in keeping industrial agriculture solvent. And what is also presented in the science is that agroecological setups, these are ones that are in a closed system without external inputs, they are actually able to yield just as much food without the damage. Now, there's a lot of science on this and it obviously varies for different products, but there is no doubt even the UN Food and Agriculture Organisation is now talking about agroecology as a way to move forward as opposed to the use of pesticides and chemicals because everybody has realised that those things have no part in a healthy food system. What the danger for me is Not so much that organic is too expensive, because I think that's, you know, from a production side, I agree it's still too expensive for consumers to buy organic, certainly in my neighbourhood. But that's about the role of governments to subsidise healthier production systems so that we actually can all afford organic food. But my point about the problem with the agroecological tools that are emerging to be very popular on the world stage, because a lot of that knowledge is I think, the way that we steer ourselves out of the problem we've got with agriculture being such a huge contributor to emissions at the moment. The problem is if they get adopted by a lot of the agribusiness companies, they will be depoliticized. And the thing about agroecology as a very important part of food sovereignty is that it's about democratic food systems. It's about having eaters and producers in co-producing networks. So in other words, It's about people mitigating the risk that farmers experience, doing community-supported agriculture, making sure that people in your local community are food secure. It's really about things that take power away from corporate food. So bringing power back to producers, by that I mean farmers, fishers, anybody doing small scale food production, bringing it back to those people in concert with eaters Making us part of the solution instead of part of the problem, not marketing to us, but actually engaging with us properly so that we understand all the consequences of the production systems and the foods that we eat. This is the real battle that's going on at the moment with the forthcoming UN Food Summit. This one this year in September is being run by the World Economic Forum and, Bill and Melinda Gates. Now, the social movements that I'm talking about, like Lavia Campesina, they have very little faith with good reason, in those particular actors having anything political in their approach to the food system. They're not going to address the inequality and the racism that pervades the food system as it exists. And I believe the reason why they don't is because they're locked into that industrial model that makes profit for them, definitely. And it also is easy to stay in that model because it's been laid down over hundreds of years through the colonial food system. So these things are deeply embedded in our global landscape, if you like. They go back to plantation agriculture when countries produced commodities to send back to the empire. And what happened then? Famines shifted away from Western Europe to India and China and a whole bunch of other countries in the global south. So I think what we really need to do is reckon with the history of that food system, look at all those connections and think about who's still marginalised today because if you look at the people marginalised today, they're the ones who've been fighting for a
0: voice ever since colonialism. That's such an interesting point. So then my question to you would be as an individual, what can I do to one, contribute to lowering my carbon footprint when it comes to what I'm eating, and then what I can do in terms of supporting agroecology to be pushed forward within politics and then be implemented within our society? Well,
1: you've hit on both the things. It needs to be a bottom-up and a top-down solution. But what we need to do is certainly, if we can afford to eat outside that corrupt food system, we do it, no matter what your diet is you don't have to give up meat. You can buy meat that is raised sustainably, that is ethically sourced. We have a local butcher here, Feather and Bone. They actually trace that beast from the farm all the way to the table and they're a whole animal butchery. There are plenty of people doing things that are extremely sustainable and also good for the environment because also livestock play a really big role in soil health and that's just a truth. So, you need to focus on consumption. But what you also really need to do is what is the big picture? What are our governments doing? When it comes to food in a changing climate, we need to close coal mines. And we also need to think about what's happening to our neighbours. The Pacific, not only is you know, climate change leading to increases in sea level, which are causing them immense problems, including loss of agricultural land, but we also dump a lot of our fatty meat in the Pacific, leading to a whole bunch of health outcomes. And again, we've got those insidious colonial practices like overfishing, offshore fishing, taking healthy livestock or healthy animal protein, I should say, away from those populations and replacing it with discretionary foods full of fat and sugar, selling them crap. So we've got a situation where we have to be very political in our eating and we have to be very political in our voting and thinking about well who's going to actually focus on food because i think australia is very complacent about food i go to many events where i sometimes get to speak but i also hear people talk about australia as the breadbasket of asia and this sort of thing and it really worries me because i feel like it just embeds that colonial arrogance and it also is inaccurate because I'm very sorry, but there's a multitude of diverse food cultures all over the world where people feed themselves very well. And a lot of the commodities that we ship around the world, I'm not saying that we don't need emergency food aid, but I am saying we need to resist dumping products in particular economies that devastate and undercut local producers. So I think that everybody needs to pay more attention to food as a political issue and we need to also think about what's happening closer to home. I think one of the biggest tragedies that we face in Australia is the Murray Darling because it's the subject of competition from horticulture, cotton, dairy, almonds and Aboriginal people, they managed to eat and look after those waterways Sustainably for tens of thousands of years, and we come along and sell water that doesn't even exist yet. You know, if you read anything about the basin plan, you just become terrified about our food future. And I think that it's that level of naivety that is a real problem. I think we all need to get really angry about food, actually, and the way that we take it for granted, and the way that we don't pay enough for it. And also, the way that we deprive a lot of people of it, because there's a lot of food insecurity in Australia. And during COVID, another, I think 30% of people at one point were going to food bank. Now, that is an extreme problem. So what's wrong with our system in terms of making sure that people have enough to eat, have enough money to eat culturally appropriate, affordable and healthy food? Really, we need to think about that.
0: And where would you say that Australia sits at the moment in terms of supporting and subsidising these farmers that are using more eco-friendly methods in terms of farming or even supporting this change that you're speaking of?
1: I think it needs a lot of attention and I don't think there's enough money in budgets for small scale farming and investment in more sustainable practices. As I mentioned, I go to a lot of events and I was at the Dairy Sustainability Summit last week and I talked to a lot of dairy farmers and some of them told me that farmers are already squeezed so much by the duopoly, for example, and by processors, the middlemen. So milk farmers, they are unable to implement sustainability measures if it's not in their budget because they just can't afford it. So where is that money going to come from? I'm not talking about giving farmers subsidies so that we prop up unsustainable, unhealthy, you know, food practices. I'm talking about supporting farmers who really want to do something to reduce their carbon footprint on farm. And plenty of farmers around the world have put forward really great plans The National Farmers Union in Canada put together a report about how to implement agroecology. And the reason they did it is because they're not making any profit anymore and they can't remain viable if they do not take drastic measures. And some of those measures seem quite radical to governments because they include things like reducing exports and focusing more on local food security and resilience. And you know what? Governments don't like that. So this is the struggle we've got. And along with our complacency about extractive industries, along with the perpetuation of the fracking, which is often in very important farmland and food bowls, without closing coal mines and industries that are transitioning industries like sugarcane, they're killing the Great Barrier Reef. We need to think really carefully about how we're going to save what we've got
0: and eat in the future at the same time. And is there any nation that is currently is doing well in terms of agroecology? I think there
1: are lots of examples. I wouldn't say there's any one country, but if you look at some of the examples of what's happening around the world, It's easy to cite Cuba because they basically had to migrate to a fossil fuel-free future because they didn't have any access to petroleum products after the fall of the Soviet bloc. I've spent a bit of time in Cuba with farmers and what they've done is amazing because they basically had to adapt to entirely new socioeconomic conditions. And what they did was they did it through sharing knowledge and mobilising across not just rural populations, but urban populations. So they focused on things like peri-urban agriculture so that they could feed their towns and cities effectively. They looked at different ways of producing that didn't involve all of those petroleum inputs. And as a result, yes, they would a lot more harder work and it was a lot more labour intensive, but there are populations around the world. These are the organic farmers, a lot of them. I'm not saying that Cuba has an ideal food system because there's not a lot of variety and there's still a lot of reliance on imports. You want to be able to have um, trade that is truly fair so that if you can't grow something or you can't raise something, you can actually still access it, certainly. But you've also got to look at other examples around the world of cooperatives where people are doing food differently in terms of local economies. So you've got lots of examples in Europe, including Italy. There's an excellent example called Campo Aperte, which actually is a community-supported agriculture model where farmers are just selling direct to consumers. And, you know, there are models like that in the United States as well. The Federation of Southern Cooperatives, which is mainly black farmers, they've basically been distributing home deliveries of fresh produce to people all throughout the pandemic. So there's plenty of models of really great innovations happening around the world and We need to look to those and we need to share them. And that's what fortunately there are a lot of really good translocal initiatives like the Milan Urban Food Policy Pact and Sydney has just joined, which is excellent news. That's 200 plus cities that are doing food differently because they realise we're so urbanised. We need to think about how we actually make people recognise the value of food, the importance of those rural linkages, but also how we manage things like food waste in cities. Really big challenges. But they only work with a whole bunch of people with really interesting ideas getting together. And a lot of those ideas are in communities. And I don't think we can rely or wait for top-down solutions because, quite frankly, top-down solutions haven't helped feed the world so far.
0: No, definitely not. And starting a movement and pushing for it from bottom up is most likely and definitely the way to go. Um, Alana, I just want to say that this conversation has been so informative, and I have so many questions, and I assume that our listeners will too. I just wanted to ask do you have any work out there or a contact that people would be able to reach you by if they did want to pick at your brains a little bit more, in the work that you do? Absolutely. I just wrote a book called Food in a Changing Climate.
1: And- It's published in the UK and the US by Emerald. It's in a series called Society Now. And what I love about it is, unlike a lot of my other work, it's not overly academic. It's still got loads of facts in it, but basically it's a small paperback about six chapters, which talks about a lot of these issues. And the great thing about it was it was an opportunity to write a book that was not only shorter and accessible, but it gave me an opportunity to point to all of the great research I've been talking about today and more. It's got about 60 pages of references in it. Amazing. So it's available, yeah, available on Booktopia. And- Please contact me as well at the University of Sydney because I love having conversations about food, and I'm very happy to answer anybody's questions and hear about exciting things people are doing with food.:
0: No problem. Um, would you want people to email you? do you have a preferred contact method?: Of course. My email
1: address is Alana.man, so that's al at sydney.edu.au.
0: I want to thank you again so much for joining me here today and educating me and our listeners about food security. Thank you. I I hope that I'll be able to do another podcast with you again and pick at your brains again. But for now, that'll have to be it, unfortunately. But again, Alana, thank you. I'd
1: really like to talk to you again, Emma, and thank you so much for a great interview. It's been real fun talking to you.
0: Thanks for listening to this in-depth episode. Make sure to check out Global Questions and the Young Diplomat Society on social media where you'll find more information about the topics we cover and upcoming events. We'll see you next week.